0: welcome back to supreme myths this is the 30th episode of this podcast and i can't think of a better person to have on the 30th episode of this podcast than my friend uh sandy levinson the w saint john green garwood and w saint john garwood jr centennial chair in law at the university of texas sandy has the longest chair name of anybody who's been uh on this podcast um you probably know who he is already, of course, but Sandy is the author of over 400 articles, essays, and all kinds of things. Uh, too many books to mention, including one of the most famous constitutional law casebooks. He blogs at the, uh, at Balkanization. Um, and he also is the co-writer, I believe, of a play, which we're going to talk about uh, later on in the podcast. I just want to say something personal. Um, just last week, a student said to me, who have been your three biggest influences in your career? And in no particular order, I said Judge Posner, Mark Tushnet, and Sandy Levinson. Um, and I mean that very, very sincerely. San- oh, thank you. Sandy, thank you for being here. <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> I My really pleasure. appreciate it. So let's start with this. You, uh, you were um, one of the first people, I think, in the law school culture that I'm familiar with to really talk about how stupid, much of our Constitution is. <laughs> and you said this before Trump. This is not a reaction to Trump. This oh, yeah, is a, yeah,
1: yeah.
0: Yeah. Why don't you give us three or four examples of, 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 of what you think are the most important stupidities in our Constitution?
1: Sure. I mean, it'd be interesting, actually, to compare whatever I say now with a lecture that I gave at Georgia State back in, I think, the winter of 2000. Um,
0: you definitely, you was, were definitely sick. That's what I remember.
1: <laughs> yeah. What I remember most vividly is that I got on the plane with flu yeah. and it really didn't get any better. Um, yeah. And I, but I, you know.
0: Now you did a great job. Lecture. You did a great job.
1: And um, so the answer I would give inevitably depends on when you're asking it. And that's why it might be interesting to look back at mm-hmm the answer I would have given 20 years ago. Today, I think the stupidest features, not necessarily in rank order, but the first, I'll give you four. Article five, because it infantilizes us, not only by making it very difficult objectively to amend the Constitution, but it also discourages any serious discussion about constitutional amendment because it seems just futile. You know, we live lives of scarcity in terms of time, money, and energy. And why would you put that into a serious campaign for constitutional amendment um, if you thought it was going to fail? It's really as simple as that. And I would contrast this with almost any of the state constitutions. And one of the things that's probably truer now than 20 years ago is that I am much more interested in state constitutions than I used to be as part of a general interest in comparative constitutionalism. And it's really important to realize that American state constitutions are really quite different from the national constitution. And one of my aspirations is to get students to argue with one another about whether the Georgia constitution or Texas constitution is better or worse in some particular feature Mm -hmm. than the U.S. constitution. And I think that all of the U.S. state constitutions are better than the U.S. constitution in terms of constitutional amendment. So that's one. Two, because of what's happened in the last 20 years, well, what's happened really in the last two years, I have really grown to loathe the impeachment clause Hmm. because it is clearly inoperative. And I think the reason it is inoperative, and I'd be interested in your own reactions on this, is that it's been captured by lawyers. And what that means is that debates about impeachment turn into shouting matches about what counts as a high crime and misdemeanor. Whereas I think impeachment really ought to be a vote of no confidence. That is, it ought to be much more political. And we ought not be embarrassed by make it more political. If you go to sleep at night, terrified that you're going to wake up and find that somebody is still president, that's a good reason to want to fire the person. It really doesn't matter whether or not he's a crook. The most serious thing about Richard Nixon Was not that he was a crook. The most serious problem with Donald Trump was not that he stiffed a lot of people in contracts. But impeachment, really, as I say, has been captured by lawyers. And lawyers are addicted, as you know better than anybody, because this is one of your own emphases, are addicted to the law politics separation so that we shouldn't taint discussion of impeachment with anything that sounds like a political consideration such as the fact that the person is unfit to be president or merely displays such appalling judgment that you want that person out so that's number two Sandy hold on let's
0: let's pause on those two things for one minute and then I'll ask you for three and four in a minute on the first one you know um, a lot of my students are always surprised when they learn that the Georgia Supreme Court, struck down georgia's anti-sodomy between two consenting adults in a private room uh yeah. before the supreme court after bowers and before lawrence it was the Georgia's, i'm talking georgia here not new jersey that struck right. down that um and, right. and there are other things that georgia supreme i know a lot of the georgia supreme court justices and leaving aside legal talent they are generally more attuned to real life considerations than okay. the supreme court of the united states so i couldn't agree with you more about the importance of state constitutions. Um, yep. On the impeachment issue, and you don't have to comment on this if you don't want to. I always say that. You can, you can stay silent on this. I think Jonathan Turley is a great example of what you're talking about. There was a time when Jonathan Turley was a real scholar, and, and, I, and I respected his work, and I still respect some of what he says. But Fox News shone the spotlight on him, and now I just view him as someone who loves the spotlight. So, oh, go ahead, uh, sir.
1: But, I mean in semi fairness to jonathan it's also the case that the the liberals who testified in behalf of trump's impeachment um who are friends of mine yeah nonetheless took up valuable time in discussions of 18th 17th and 18th century English practice on impeachment <laughs> and originalism that both of us would agree is really beside the point, even if one took originalism more seriously than either you <laughs> or I do. yeah, But it just was infuriating To see somebody with the talents of Noah Feldman and Pam Carlin, I think Mike Gerhardt, I think he was the third one, all of whom are extremely able, all of whom broadly share what I take to be our general politics, reduced to offering what Antonin Scalia would have called argle bargle. (laughs) In terms of discussing whether Donald Trump is fit to be president. Yeah. Um It's
0: insane. I actually I actually wrote a blog post about that. I use Noah Feldman. Yeah. I'm I've gone between case books in the past. I have used yours in the past, but right now I'm using Noah Feldman's and I yeah. like Noah. All three of them, and I love Pam, of course, and Michael's a friend of mine. Yeah. All three yeah. of them, I wrote a blog post saying, What were they doing there? Why did yeah. they think they should be there? That was my position.
1: Yeah. Um So, you know, moving on, just to finish three and four, the Senate, you know, (laughs) in many ways ought to have pride of place. There is, I think, no defense of the Senate. Uh, Here I will become quasi-originalist because I always point out whenever I can that James Madison detested, at least in 1787, detested equal voting power in the Senate. He described it as an evil... I always go on to say he described it as a lesser evil because it was the compromise price necessary to get a constitution. But what I always point out is that the other central compromise that's never honored with capital letters as the Great Compromise was slavery. Right. And we are living adversely with the consequences of the compromises over slavery and the compromises over the Senate. So, you know, the Senate is just terrible beyond belief. And then, you know, it's embarrassingly low-hanging fruit, but the Electoral College always deserves to be listed (laughs) in, you know, the greatest none hits. Both of, you know, if I can add a fifth, because I'm sure both of us agree, um, is life tenure, especially on the Supreme Court. I'm much more agnostic About life tenure on federal courts in general. But I think that it is an idea whose time has long since uh, gone in terms of being defensible.
0: Yeah. Um, On the life tenure point, of course, you know, I agree with you 100% on that. I I was thinking about Justice Breyer today because he gave a talk yesterday at Harvard. We're taping this on Wednesday. It won't come out for a few more days. But Justice Breyer, gave a talk yesterday at Harvard at the annual Antonin Scalia Lecture, which I think was funded by all kinds of dark – there's a whole story there too, but leaving that aside. But Breyer was warning the liberals not to do court reform because that would turn the court into a more political institution than it already is. And I thought, let's look at the world when you were confirmed, 1994, I believe. I mean, there wasn't even an internet, really. I mean, it was, but not like today. And he's still on the bench. That has to be crazy, yes? Right.
1: Um, you know, I think one can agree with Breyer and then use the expression that my friend Jack Balkan often uses in this context. So what's your point? Because <laughs> what, what Breyer wants to resist... And frankly, I think he wants to resist it not because he's you know being cleverly political. I think it's actually his worldview. Uh, I I do not think you can you know disregard the fact that he was educated at Harvard in I think the late fifties, early sixties. He is a veteran of the Hart and Sachs approach to trying to respond to American legal realism by creating what I again suspect that both of us agree is this fantasy of a legal method, a legal process that is sufficiently divorced from politics that we can continue to venerate it and that I think that is the way that Breyer thinks so I don't think he's a cynic but I do think, that he is missing the point that the Supreme Court especially has always been from the moment that John Adams appointed the midnight judges, and particularly John Marshall to be chief justice, has always been up to its neck in politics. And the question is whether that understanding ought to be limited To the cognoscenti like us, (laughs) or whether you know the people in general should realize that the court is a very special political institution. Now, where you and I might disagree is that I think the court, in fact, can and on occasion has played a valuable role, Um, but. That doesn't reduce at all the fact that the role it's playing is a political role. And as you know, I have grown, much to my surprise, to share your esteem for Richard Posner, (laughs) especially what I will call the late Richard Posner. Now that is the you know, late in his career, since he's certainly still alive. Sandy, I have to interrupt for
0: one second. I'm sorry. So I am criticized on social media every day for talking too much about Richard Posner, and I want to be clear that you brought him up, not me. <laughs> yes.
1: No, I, I I very happily brought him up <laughs> because I really do have great esteem for him. Uh, but part of what I esteem in him is that he is probably the only judge in the history of the world who has written a book called Overcoming Law, and who you know, is open and above the board. And I think he's very similar to Breyer, incidentally. I think that he is a, you know, I've I've defined um, Posner as a right-wing crit, but I think that what ties Posner and Breyer together is that both view the role of the judge as genuinely trying to make the country better and not paying all that much attention to legal formalism. Yeah. By way of doing that. Uh, Posner at times would pay no attention to it. Breyer pays somewhat more attention, but neither one of them is the child of Christopher Columbus Langdell. (laughs) Um, And is a technocrat. And so I think at heart is Posner. And so we can have a genuine debate about whether there is a valuable role for an institution that is political, but less political than the U.S. Senate, in part because once they're appointed, they don't have to run for re-election. And they have, you know, they have life. I wish it were only 16 or 18 years, but they have, you know, a good amount of time to instantiate their vision. And then we can argue whether that's a desirable institution or not. I don't think that's an argument that Breyer really wants to have though to his credit he's written now a couple of books about the Supreme Court that I think makes sense only if you realize that judges bring to them as Felix Frankfurter argued back in 1933 and even before that this is an essay in the International Encyclopedia of Social Sciences, where he said judges bring to the court idealized pictures in their heads <laughs> of how the political system should operate. Right, And that seems to me clearly, obviously true. There's no serious argument about that.
0: Um, so, Sandy, uh, one of the things that before um, retired Judge Posner left public life you know, he he kind of went after the Supreme Court pretty harshly. He went after Scalia, and he, he went after the vote. Yep. But but yep. he never went after Breyer. And he told me that Breyer was his, on many occasions, that of the, of the current court, that he thought Breyer was, A, his favorite, and B, maybe the smartest—I mean, before Kagan got on, anyway—maybe the smartest justice on the court. He had a lot of respect for Breyer, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. You
1: know, smartness is interesting in this context because— um, You know, one of the banes of legal education is how we define smartness, what grades are based on, what law reviews look like. So, you know, I don't know how smart Breyer is. I'm sure he is very smart. Um, I think that actually... Most of the justices are very smart. I have no reason actually to believe that Clarence Thomas isn't very smart. I think that partly by his own disastrous decision (laughs) to portray himself as a fool in his confirmation hearing. So he said, well, I've never talked about Roe versus Wade, or I gave these speeches, but I really didn't write them. That, I think, deserved him and i think that he is also the victim of a certain amount of racism in being dismissed that being said i wish he weren't on the court i would have voted against him before anita, anita hill um i think it's perfectly proper to take ideology into account but i don't think clarence thomas is dumb no so then so then it's a question of what kinds of intelligence people have. And, you know, I think that Breyer and Posner had a kind of intelligence that serves the country better than the kind of intelligence that will get you A pluses (laughs) at some of our finest law schools because you can case crunch in certain ways. Um, and, you know, I have become more and more a critic of legal education in my sunset years, and when you introduced me, uh, you know, I do have that long title, and I'm extremely grateful to the Garwood family for, you know, helping to subsidize me, but I also increasingly emphasize that I also remember the government department at UT, and I would say that in my sunset years, I do identify at least as much as a political scientist, though I'm much better paid than almost all political scientists yeah. are right um, than a law professor. Well, I
0: think that's one of the reasons I've ad- I mean one of the many reasons I've admired your work over the years because you come at this, as much as a political scientist as a lawyer. And that, I think, I think that is when we're talking about the Supreme Court, I think it's really important. Can I tell you where I, where, where Breyer lost me? And I've mentioned this once before in a podcast, I forget with who. So he voted to uphold every affirmative action law he's ever seen, except the one in Gratz, which was the same day as Grutter. Yep. And in that case, he drops, all he does is drop a footnote where he basically says, I agree with Justice O'Connor's decision striking down the the affirmative action plan, except to the extent that it says anything. And then he says, I agree with Ginsburg's dissent uh, completely, except for its conclusion. And I have always thought, and this recently was confirmed to me by someone who knows him, not not Posner, that he probably did that to protect Sandra Day O'Connor, who was his really close friend.
1: Um... That would not shock me, uh, nor would it necessarily appall me that, I mean, my response to the political critique of the court is not to say, oh, we have to try to remove any taint of politics, but rather to say, okay, we recognize there are these you know, political aspects of the court. Are we well served by them or not? How might we redesign it to be better? So that, you know, talk about reform, Breyer's talk. He is thinking about court packing. Right. And I, quite frankly, am, you know, far more sympathetic to court packing than he is. But what I posted this morning on a listserv that, Both of us are on, is my reservations about the Supreme Court's control over its own docket, which is just another example of congressional delegation. It goes back to the CERT Act of 1925 that Chief Justice William Howard Taft lobbied for. And over the years, Congress has been ever more acquiescent. My view is that we might well be better off if the Supreme Court lost control over its own docket and if, for example, we had a specialized cert court and then we could debate about how that court should be... I've called for that,
0: Sandy. I've called for that. I think it's a great idea.
1: So, um, I mean, we could also talk about...
0: I'm sorry, let me interrupt um, you one more time. That 1925 law you just mentioned... There's a law professor at Penn State, and I'm going to forget his name, and that's just having a senior moment, who has written a fantastic article. That law gives the court its tertiary discretion over cases, not issues. And this, this law professor at Penn State has made the argument when the court takes a case and says these three issues, that flatly violates the statute. And any issue in the case should be fair game because they only have jurisdiction over cases not, under the yeah. clear terms of the law.
1: Okay, so now you're retreating to legal formalism. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you know, how do you explain Breyer's vote in Sebelius? That you know where he um, agrees with Roberts that the Medicaid expansion is unconstitutional. Kagan, of course, voted the same way. Um, one answer is I have no idea.
0: No, we he, do, Sandy. We exactly know. We know, Sandy. Voted, I'm sorry. We now know. We now know. I mean, Robert's biographer. Okay,
1: Okay. no, no idea is an exaggeration. Okay, I, I don't have dispositive evidence. Okay, Uh, and but it seems to me highly likely that Breyer and Kagan were playing the long game, and might have simply underestimated the degree to which crazily Republican states <laughs> would turn down the deal right as Texas did I think Georgia
0: did yes. yep. you know
1: that and you know that that Republicans would rather see people die than warrant Obamacare I don't think that that was so obvious in 2012. Yep. And I think that Breyer and Kagan thought that Roberts had taken one for the team in switching his vote or apparently switching his vote with regard to the mandate and coming up with his tax rationale. Um, and so, you know, you can either be shocked that they would have done this, or to say, okay, what were they thinking? And on balance, do you do we think they're glad or sad they did what they did? Now the fact is, it wouldn't have mattered had they gone with Ginsburg's dissent. Robert still would have prevailed, and Texas still would have been able to say no to Medicare. So. I mean, the most unfathomable of Breyer's votes to me is the one in an automobile stock case from Utah a couple of years ago, where the Utah Supreme Court, and this again gets to your point, that we, and by we, I will say broadly, political liberals or law students either don't know anything about state courts or automatically assume that state courts are going to be Neanderthal and it's the federal courts that are enlightened. The Utah Supreme Court uh, protected the driver who was stopped, said it violated the Fourth Amendment. Unfortunately, they didn't say it violated the Utah Constitution. They said it violated the Fourth Amendment. And then Breyer supplied the fifth vote, in an opinion written by one of the conservatives. I don't think he wrote the opinion, but I know that he was the fifth vote. And so there I had to ask, what was he thinking? And I have no idea.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that because Justice Stevens, who's probably my favorite justice, give or take, um, in Michigan versus Long a long time ago, said, this goes back to your, 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 your point about the discretionary docket and the court is complete discretion. That was a case where the Michigan Supreme court had interpreted the fourth amendment liberally to let somebody out or something. And the court reverses and Stephen says, why are we doing this? If Michigan wants to let him out, why are we overturning Michigan? And and why are we (laughs) taking this case? It's a huge, and I, I, you know, it goes right to your point. Right. Yeah. I mean, this touches, you know, I don't know whether you want to go down this road or not,
1: but it touches on the degree to which, or I should say when the court professes to take federalism very, very seriously, (laughs) and when it very clearly just couldn't care less about federalism. Uh, And this is a very, very interesting example. Yeah.
0: Let's talk about the court for a minute before we get into legal education. so I will never forget, I don't remember when it, when it was, but it was at least five or ten years ago. I had asked you to look at something or be involved in something, and you've always said yes to me in everything I've ever, I've ever asked you to do, but this was a very doctrinal thing. And you, and you very nicely and politely said to me, Eric, I, I just don't have any interest in getting into debates about you know constitutional doctrine. I did that for a long time, and I'm done. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, um, I think what you say is more or less true. I think probably one could say that my metier has never been constitutional doctrine. Sure. Though I would say to anybody who, you know, accused me (laughs) of you know, not being able to do it at all. You know, I would say that in many ways, the high point in my legal education at Stanford was working with Tony Amsterdam on a cert petition to the Supreme Court. And Tony, as you know, is one of the all-time great doctrinalists. And, And I certainly read every case I could get my hands on. And in you know, a kind of struck by lightning fluke. I actually got a case that started out in the Princeton traffic court to the U S Supreme court. Wow! And so I, I had my moment of <laughs> arguing before the Supreme court and I wrote a highly doctrinal brief. And so I think I can do. Like,
0: that. And I wasn't do suggesting it. you can't do it. I was suggesting no, no, you don't no, want to do
1: it. But, but, but I would also say and more to the point of your question It's not something that I find compelling as a use of my increasingly scarce time. I think that one of the reasons to be perfectly blunt is that in my old age, I want to read first rate or even second rate stuff. And most of what the Supreme Court is doing is third or fourth rate. Yeah. Partly because the opinions are written by law clerks who have been trained at our nation's finest law schools to do case crunching and nothing else. Partly because especially majority opinions, are horses designed by a committee. And so they almost inevitably will come out looking like camels. And so you wonder, well, does this really make sense? And the answer is no, but it was the price of getting a fifth vote. Right. So, you know, to take Scalia's opinion in Heller, for example, of which I'm not a fan for many reasons, though I think the result was right. Um, but Scalia simply announces as an ipsa-dixit that every existing national law restricting firearms is constitutional. He doesn't give you the slightest clue <laughs> as to why that's the case, Other than actually, it doesn't give you the clue. The externalist suspicion is that it was necessary to get Anthony Kennedy's fifth vote. Right. Um, And a vote for the majority opinion rather than a patented concurring opinion by Kennedy, as in parents involved, that makes no sense. But it does have the virtue of stripping Robert's opinion of the status it would have had had it been a majority opinion instead of, I think, merely a plurality
0: opinion for four. I think think Obergefell is the same. I think the liberals... Oh,
1: Obergefell. Yeah. yeah, That it is, from one perspective, inexplicable. (laughs) how Kagan and Sotomayor could have signed on to that opinion, because I teach Kennedy's opinion as a truly Catholic opinion that argues basically that if you don't have the discipline to be a monk (laughs) or a nun, then you must be married in order to have a fulfilled life.
0: Or, or you, or the line is, you will call out into the darkness and nobody will answer.
1: <laughs> exactly. And I don't believe that is Sotomayor's or Kagan's view of themselves. <laughs> I think that the decision rule for them was whatever Tony wants, Tony gets. Yes. And I don't have any hesitation in, were I to teach Obergefell, and I no longer teach introductory common law, I would have no hesitation in saying that. Um, and for that matter, in defending it, that better to have Obergefell, even as a majority opinion, even if it doesn't make much sense in a number of ways, than to have. Kennedy's opinion as only a plurality opinion and then you know the need for these concurring opinions to get to number five
0: either either Kagan or Ginsburg said that after the fact they kind of they they gave an one of them gave an interview and pretty much said we decided one unified decision even if we don't agree with every sentence would be better so you know Um, i I want to ask you a very selfish question um Many years ago, 2013, I think, um, you were very kind to be on a panel on my book, Supreme Myths, Why the Supreme Court is Not a Court, um, in Hawaii, actually. <laughs> it was fun yes, to be in. Yes. <laughs> and, and one of the things you said at, at that um, panel, I, I want to ask you about today, because it's been, it's been eight years now. You said to me, um, you didn't really have an issue with my descriptive account, where you did disagree with me. Um, was that the Supreme Court was in any way that serious different than other uh, state Supreme Courts or appellate judges where there's no precedent in how they handle legal issues. And I responded, I don't agree with that. I think a perfect storm of events has made the Supreme Court a unique political institution, legal institution in the world uh, for a lot of reasons. Do you still think that the court is not really that different than those other courts?
1: Um. Probably not. Um, I mean, clearly, the Supreme Court has more more open freedom yeah. than a an appellate court. Now, one can argue that appellate courts can be very wide ranging indeed in the way they use their power, knowing among other things, that literally 99% of Court of Appeals decisions are final decisions. And if you are a rational choice buff, you actually realize that your decisions aren't going to be reviewed. You can pretty much do what you want, though there's always the possibility that the court will take a case. Yeah. Um you know, I don't know that Posner spent much time worrying that the Supreme Court would monitor him.
0: Um, well, let me say on that point that Posner and I had a debate in the Cardozo Law Review where he took your position, where he said, yeah. the Supreme Court really isn't that different because 99.9% of the time, I don't have to worry about them. To which yeah. I responded, I'm, I'm curious your opinion about this, to which I responded, but you were very, you Posner, were very critical of Heller in every imaginable way and publicly the day it came out. And a year later or two years later, you struck down an Illinois gun law, which you wouldn't have voted to strike down were it not for Heller.
1: Okay. Okay. Two things. One is the language that the judges feel free to use in their opinions. And it's just the case that no, quote, inferior judge, unquote. No is a little exaggeration, because you can find an exception or two. Almost no inferior judge will say, I am overruling what I think to be a dreadful decision by right. the U.S. Supreme Court. Right. They all feel it necessary to be doctrinalists, which is why I wrote something, oh, at least 20 years ago in a Federalist Society journal that the whole debate about originalism is completely and utterly irrelevant, (laughs) except for the Supreme Court. right? Because if you go before an inferior court, unless it's a fabled case of first impression, you're going to spend your time case crunching. And if you tell the judge, your honor, this case is wrongly decided because James Madison would have been Bald, which might be true, the the response of the judge and and the judge will be chastised if this isn't the response. Is my job is to be the faithful agent of the Supreme Court.
0: It's not to overrule the court. And by the way, Posner and, believed that Sandy Posner believed that hundred percent.
1: Right, right. So then you get to why did Posner write the decision he did in the gun case? Is it because he viewed himself as under a duty to be a faithful agent of people he really didn't respect. right? Or, or is it that he was engaging in what David Posen and Jessica Bowman Posen might describe as uncivil obedience? <laughs> that is reading the Heller case kind of for all it's worth and saying, okay, are you willing to take responsibility for this consequence, Right, which seems to follow and which is really, although he doesn't quite say this, really quite counterproductive from a social policy point of view. I mean, I think the greatest, I think it's an 11 page appellate opinion of all time, is Frank Easterbrook's opinion for the Seventh Circuit in McDonald. Yeah. Where yep. he says, even given Heller, we don't have to incorporate the Second Amendment against Illinois not only because reasonable people can believe there ought not be one single national solution to the issue of guns, but because, hey, some of us believe in federalism. Right. (laughs) And so-
0: Um, Sandy, I got to go back to something you said, otherwise people will kill me. You said you thought Heller was, the result was right if the analysis was wrong. I want to make sure I understand what you mean by that. I take yeah. your writings to be that we can get to a right to own guns in various different ways using the 14th Amendment, not using the original Second Amendment. Is that fair? Yeah, or
1: using, using the Ninth Amendment. Okay. That okay. It is, I think, completely respectable to argue that by the mid-19th century, both Roger Taney and Charles Sumner agreed <laughs> that if you were a U.S. citizen, you had a right to keep and bear arms. Period. I think this is why Taney believed that Blacks could not be citizens, because it was unthinkable to him that Blacks could have a right to bear arms. Right. And why Sumner, in his Bleeding Kansas speech, said, of course, anti-slavery settlers in Kansas should have a right to bear arms. This has nothing to do with serving in a militia. Um, And I think you could also make arguments that for better and for worse, I think as a society, we'd be better off if there were no firearms. Um, But that's not the society we live in. I think that it is crystal clear that most Americans do believe there is some kind of right to bear arms. And frankly, one of the things I find so fascinating about Hiller, particularly for people like you and me, who identify ourselves with legal realism in one way or another, that if the question self-consciously before the judges had been, what will serve the interests of my party? Then Howard would have come out the other way. Right. That is the Republicans would have realized that it's a winning issue for the Republican Party to say we protect guns and these liberal Democrats really do want to take your guns away, which a lot of liberal Democrats do. On the other hand, the liberals who dissented would have said, look, we have this once-in-a-lifetime candidate named Barack Obama <laughs> who you know might actually become president. But he's never, ever going to become president if he has to spend all of his time explaining either why he agrees that if the legislatures want to, they can take away your gun rights, or that we, the court, got it wrong. But no, what you had was the Republicans giving Obama the great gift of taking guns out of the 2008 political campaign and allowing him to win. Now, you know, obviously that's an oversimplified analysis, but I think what it points to, and I don't think this disconfirms this realism, but it disconfirms a certain crassly political form of realism where realism sometimes is described as what Jack Balkin and I called low politics what will help my political party tomorrow it's not that i think the supreme court never thinks that way but i think they almost never think that way i do think they think in broadly ideological terms and they think that those views held by the Republican Party or by the Democratic Party are generally good for the country. Um, I would also offer the same distinction between high politics and low politics with regard to racial gerrymandering. I think it is very, very clear that racial gerrymandering, by and large, is a gift to the Republican Party. But you could never tell that from the lineup in the Supreme Court
0: going back to Heller for a minute so um, unlike political scientists um, I I do not my realism is not really based on partisanship I mean it's it's more that now than it ever was but it's not my view is they're human beings (laughs) who make all things considered decisions of which partisan politics sometimes Shelby County versus Holder sometimes plays a role and sometimes doesn't but as to Heller I think there's a—my mom was—my mother was a therapist, and I found it very useful to talk to her about the patterns of Supreme Court justices, because she had some insights that were very interesting, one of which for the Obamacare case was Justice Roberts was tired of it being Justice Kennedy's court, and I think that's really true. I think—no, I really do. I think there's a big part of that there. But as to uh, Heller—and my mother was a feminist, so if that disclaimer—I think— I think if without Roe, there's no Heller. I I think there was an emotional need for Scalia, certainly, and maybe some of the others. This is our Roe. If you're going to make, if you're going to put Roe on us, we're going to do this to you, regardless of how it plays out politically for the Republican or Democratic Party. Um, I I do think there's a part. There's a part of that there. I I think you may disagree, but I think there's a part of because they are what people. My biggest complaint about literature on the Supreme Court. And this is true, this is as true of political scientists, I think, as as law professors. They're human beings. They're flawed. You know, they do things because of feeling.
1: Yeah. But maybe but is the wrong way to begin it. One of the attributes of American exceptionalism is judicial biography. Yeah. There has never been. A biography written of any member of the German constitutional court, <laughs> even though it's probably in many ways the most important and influential constitutional court, except maybe for the US Supreme Court in the world. Um and so you know it might be worth your inviting sometime a specialist on comparative law or particularly German law and the rule of law tradition in Germany that allows the court by and large to come up with unanimous decisions where people across the political spectrum respect the judges who incidentally serve limited terms and where the decisions are thought to be, in some meaningful sense, the products of legal analysis rather than politics right. dressed up in right. Right. legal analysis. Right. On the other hand, you know, the last time was at the Supreme Court building, uh, which was actually December of 2019 before the lockdown. Uh, if you go into the gift shop, you find an entire stand of books devoted to Ruth Ginsburg right of all ages right that is crazy yes um but you know I was for a course, I'm giving this term on constitutional design compared to constitutional design. Um, reading a very interesting essay um, on presidentialism. Um, And there's a discussion of Latin American presidentialism and Caudillism. And the offhand comment, which I underlined and in fact wrote down on my computer, that in Latin America, presidentialism and Caudillism leads to political history being biographical, that forget about presidents who are really confined by the Constitution, who are merely Whiggish faithful executors of the law. <laughs> you know, the the highest of all bureaucrats, but nonetheless they're merely bureaucrats. And why would you necessarily find them particularly interesting? You find Cadillos interesting because they had, to put it mildly, very capacious understandings of their positions. Constitutions weren't all that important to them. And so I started thinking, and I wrote in the margin, "Well, what about the American predilection for judicial biographies?" And I, you know, there are already, I think, now at least three or four biographies of Scalia. I assume there will be more. I think there are a couple of on um, Kennedy, um, you know, Ginsburg, O'Connor has now promote. Yeah, why do we do this? <laughs> because. From one perspective, judges should be, like David Souter, really uninteresting, viewing themselves as faithful servants of the law and nothing else. Yep. So I, that yep. unless you're a legal academic, you probably don't even remember <laughs> David Souter's name. And... I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there's at least one Ph.D. dissertation on Souter because he was on the court for 20 years. But I don't think that any of us are leaping to write a biography of David Souter.
0: Right. Um, Susanna Sherry, who I think is a wonderful and thoughtful thinker, um, wrote an article last year or two years ago about the problem of Supreme Court celebrity. And she thought and she thought it was terrible. the article is terrible or the celebrity is terrible?
1: The celebrity is terrible.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: No, that, that Antonin Scalia fundamentally rewrote the job description of what it meant to be a Supreme Court justice. And when you come back to politics, he came to the correct conclusion that almost nobody reads Supreme Court opinions right. except lawyers and legal academics lawyers interested in very specific areas and law students and legal and legal academics who teach this stuff but if you really want to be effective you have to change the hearts and minds of the mass public and that's what he really did so his opinions were not written to his fellow justices whom he often treated with contempt they weren't they were written for law students in terms of getting their attention. He was a very skillful writer, very good polemicist. And then he went on the road constantly. He was always campaigning. And Breyer, interestingly enough, and I don't think it's Breyer's natural personality to go on the Larry King show or to come down to Texas and to debate before, I think, five or eight thousand people at Texas Tech with Scalia on originalism or right. the court or something right. like that, but to Breyer's credit, he he realized that he ought not give Scalia an open track. It was really necessary and proper to compete with him in the court of public opinion. Now, you know, it's interesting in the present court, there's been no real successor to Scalia in terms of kind of indefatigable campaigning. But nonetheless, you could certainly draw... A curve or a histogram as to which judges are more likely to speak in what you and I would regard as politically freighted contexts and the ones who don't. Interestingly enough, for whatever reason, Kagan is not a regular before the American Constitution Society. Yeah. Um, I think she really rations her public speeches. Alito, on the other hand, can be a political hack.
0: Don't get me started, Sandy. I, I, Alito <laughs> went around the country three years ago. I documented this, talking about the threat to religious liberty while yep. the Masterpiece Cake Shop case was finding its way to the Supreme Court. Right. I I mean, oh, Adam,
1: Adam Liptak has an interesting sidebar in yesterday's New York yeah. Times actually based on an article by Posner's son, Eric and yeah. Lee Epstein on how, you know, the Supreme court has simply done a U-turn over the last two decades in so called religious Liberty cases. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, um, but you know, that too, I don't, I don't know that there's any celebrity, on the current U.S. Supreme Court to compare with Ginsburg or Scalia. Agreed. And I think, and, you know, I don't think Roberts ever does anything particularly interesting in public except make his understandable but ridiculous intervention um, last year or a couple of years ago That there are no Obama judges (laughs) or Trump judges that were all umpires calling balls and strikes. Now, I don't think he really believed that, but I could understand why as Chief Justice, he thought it was useful to say that.
0: Um, His his year-end reports, which, by the way, I find this interesting. Every year on December 31st, he does a report of the judiciary, which journalists— get like at one o'clock in the afternoon, but but it's embargoed until six o'clock, which raises all kinds of issues by itself. But leaving that aside, you fall asleep after three lines. He's done like 15 of them. They're so dull. Well, well, except
1: when, oh, I I forget when, shortly after he got to the court, where I think it's fair to say, I don't think it's simply snarky to say that he traded a roughly one or two million dollar income for I think it's something like two hundred fifty thousand yeah. dollars income. He wrote, he you know organized his message around the so-called constitutional crisis <laughs> of low judicial salaries. Right <laughs> now, as a matter as a matter of fact, I think we probably do underpay, certainly public servants in general, and maybe even judges in particular, but. I don't think that that is the greatest crisis facing us. I'm sure that the public defenders, Joe Biden, just nominated to be on the federal courts, will appreciate the pay raise they're going to get. And where, you know, I I think they will get as district judges merely about $175,000 a year, um, which will place them well above the median.
0: We have to end this in a couple of minutes. I, I want to say one thing and ask you one last question. Um, I think it was 2012, but I'll be corrected if I'm wrong. When people were upset that the Obamacare case wasn't being televised, and and you know, I've always you know, and, and cameras in the court was a big. And Roberts wrote a year-end report talking about pneumatic tubes. And how we, 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 it's our job to go slowly. And it's our job to, and he gave a whole history of pneumatic tubes. And I was like, are you kidding me? All right, uh, Sandy, one last question, because we've gone over anyway. Um, just give me five minutes on the play you wrote, how that came to be. It's now a movie on, on Amazon. And...
1: It's not a play that I wrote. Okay. That, I know, it's very, very important. Heidi Shrek wrote it. Okay. Uh, what the Constitution means to me. Yeah. What is true? is that as the result of sheer contingency, you know, lightning strike coincidence. First of all, my wife and I co-published a book or co-wrote a book called Fault Line to the Constitution. Right. That is ostensibly written for teenagers. But I always point out that it's fine with me if grandparents, parents, (laughs) aunts and uncles and everybody else reads it as well, because it really lays out in what I think, because my wife is a very talented writer, far more so than I am, lays out in very accessible ways, problems in the U.S. Constitution. So that, in fact, I have assigned the book to law schools, and I think the book worked. And it's also available, this is the commercial, okay. it's also available in in a graphic novel version that was published last year. So at NYU Law School in 2017, just after the first edition of our book came out, uh, Mava Marcus organized an event for social studies teachers in New York and Connecticut to spend the day Talking about the book and how it might be integrated into the teaching of about the American Constitution, because as you know, I think legal education—I think it's pathological. We grotesquely overemphasize the importance of rights provisions, right, and pay almost no attention to structural provisions because the structural provisions that are most important are never litigated. Right. So as far as look. Legal education is concerned, the structural provisions may as well not exist. So there we were at NYU. Heidi was there because at that time she was writing her play, somehow or other, had heard about this program and decided to attend. And everybody in attendance got a free copy of the book. So she read the book, and it influenced her in the last 12 to 15 minutes of the play, which is a debate about, using her terminology, not mine, whether the U.S. Constitution should be abolished. Right. I I would settle for being, for radically reformed. (laughs) No, doesn't matter. Um, the narrative arc of the play, which is wonderful, and it is available um, either on Amazon It's
0: Amazon Prime. Prime. I checked. It's Amazon Prime.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a wonderful play. Everybody should watch it. The narrative arc is that she begins as a 15-year-old winning American Legion contest after American Legion contest. On what the Constitution means to me, huh. which obviously is celebratory. She gets enough prize money that it pays for her to go to college. And so, and she wasn't cynical, she really did love the Constitution. And then the narrative arc is how, as a feminist, she becomes radically disillusioned with the American Constitution. Because she views it, you know, debatably or not, as having nothing in it for women. And, and then, as I say, it concludes with a debate between the between Heidi and she starred in the play on Broadway yeah. and in LA and on the, the Amazon Prime version. And a 15-year-old phenomenally good debater. Now, there are different 15- or 16-year-old phenomenally good debaters who play that role. We saw one of them, I think she was then 17, she was going out to Trinity College in Hartford. So on the Amazon Prime version, there's another phenomenally good debater. What they do is to pick a number from a hat each night as to who debates, abolish it or keep it. And it really is very interesting. And so she drew on our book for some of the reasons. In addition, I mean, interestingly enough, our book, brings up the issue of women's rights in a specific chapter on Article 5 and the near impossibility of amending the Constitution. So the heroine, and I certainly use that in quotes, of that particular chapter is Phyllis Schlafly.
0: Of course, right.
1: Because, you know, she figured out that with a lot of skillful political organization she could prevent the era from happening because the er because article 5 gives unconscionable advantage to those playing defense in the game of constitutional amendment and you know we indicate that the era had Majority support. My own view is that I wish the ERA were in the Constitution, but also, quite frankly, that if you are a lawyer with a capital L, it doesn't matter that much one way or the other, because you can get wherever you want to go through the 14th Amendment. Yeah. Full stop.
0: Yeah. So, but, I will you know, say that but, that Noah Feldman says in his casebook, I have not confirmed this, that we're the only Western country in the world with a constitution that doesn't have a provision for equal. Sure.
1: Western. Sure. And we ought to, we're the only constitution now in the Western world or any constitution written since 1945 that doesn't include medical care or right. education. Right. Um, right. So, I mean, I'm not opposed to the ERA and, you know, I share Heidi's dismay that Phyllis Schlafly was able to prevent it because of this really dreadful and indefensible aspect of the U.S. Constitution called Article 5. But she gets the credit for the play. Okay. C- Cynthia and I are really, really pleased that she happened to be in Washington square that day (laughs) in October. And what that led to is that she wrote a great blurb for the second edition of our book that came out in 2019. And Cynthia and I got the opportunity to do a talk back on Broadway. That's awesome. In May of 2019 following one of the productions. So I've argued a case before the U S Supreme court and I've been on Broadway. What more can one ask?
0: Well, I just, I, I just want to say that we started with article five. We're ending with article five, which is a good thing to do. And I do want to say Sandy uh, in in all seriousness, that your voice um, really for my entire career, which is 30 years, your voice has been really important. And I want you to keep at it and keep doing these things and keep shaking things up. Um, because I really think you've made a difference. I, I say this seriously, you've made a big difference to me and a lot of the sixty year olds, you know, was one generation behind you. Behind Kids. you. <laughs> and uh
1: You're 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 very kind. It's true. And it's know, true. I, I I hope that some of it is true. Um it is. But I've certainly enjoyed, you know, being here. And well, wish we could go on forever. Yeah,
0: thank you so much. Me too. I wish we could too. Thank you so much, Sandy. And after COVID is over, we'll see each other at some point.
1: (laughs) Yes, I look forward to that.
0: Thank you very much.